Welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast. Now, we are recording today from the outside on the first beautiful day of spring. So you may hear the occasional dog bark and certainly you will hear some very loud birds. Um, but we couldn't miss the day. So today we're back and we're going to be talking about the AMH test. So this is something that if you've been looking at getting your you're looking at freezing your eggs or having IVF, a test you've been, you would have heard. And today we're going to hear from Dr. Rayleigh Lou what it actually means. Hi, Rayleigh. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to season two. Yes. We're back with a few more topics. Who thought there was so much more to talk about? So AMH, we hear it bandied around a little bit. It's, it's a number. It, it can mean a lot, but it can also not mean as much, I guess. It changes with age. I don't know what else. Starting with AMH, it's called anti-malarian hormone, and it's a blood test. So yeah, anti-malarian hormone is a measure of the ovarian reserve. And what that means is it's a way of understanding what the ovary is capable of. And in terms of certainly IVF treatment and egg freezing, where we stimulate the ovary to try and uh, induce the development of multiple eggs in the same month, the AMH can indicate how many eggs might be available for a given person. So, with, so what kind of numbers are we seeing? Like, um, oh, I suppose i just say first, malaria is not malaria, it's with a U. Yeah, took, so, it, <laughs> so it's eponymous. What that means is a lot of things in medicine are named after people who discovered them. And um, Muller was a, a German guy who discovered the malarian ducts. And the malarian ducts actually are structures that occur in both male and female early fetuses. So when we're kind of before we've decided based on the expression of our genes whether we're going to go down a male or a female development pathway. And they end up being um, turned into the fallopian tubes and the uterus in a woman and in male fetuses at that early stage they express anti-malarian hormone in a completely different capacity um, to repress the development of the uterus and the fallopian tubes and um, so we all start off with all the bits to make either a a male or a female Um, and depending on the instructions (laughs) that's true (laughs) and um, depending on the instructions from our genes um, we decide to go down either a male or, or female pathway someone be getting the AMH test? So the reason that we use it in fertility is for a completely different reason. The gene for AMH um, turns on in the ovary. And in the ovary, it works actually at the very early stages of regulating how our follicles leave the resting pool and go in and develop. So you've you've probably heard before, uh, certainly we've we've talked about it before in this podcast, that... um, we make all the eggs we're going to make before we're born yes. and they sit around resting and gradually uh, they're released. Um, and it's about a 300-day journey from when the egg leaves the resting pool. Actually, a whole group of eggs leave at the same time every day. Um, but it takes about 300 days, almost a year, for an egg to go from being asleep and completely resting to being involved in a cycle. Yeah, and anti-malarian hormone actually has no real role directly in an IVF cycle or in an egg freezing cycle, but it's a hormone that regulates 
how many eggs leave the ovarian reserve. It kind of uh, actually suppresses eggs from leaving the ovarian reserve. It keeps the resting pool asleep, yes. so to speak. Yes. It's like, you think of it like a little nanny kind of tucking the little eggies into bed. And so what it does do, though, is give us an estimation of the resting pool for a given person. And it doesn't change much month to month or week to week. But gradually, over many years, it does reduce as our ovarian reserve reduces. Also, an analogy that I've used before and I do use clinically is that there's a huge range of what's normal in the AMH, absolutely huge. And just like someone can be an A cup in bra size or a double D and still both be completely normal, Mm -hmm. so can a woman of the exact same age have an ovary that has a very different amount of eggs and also size of the ovary follicle density to someone else, just like... All other biological characteristics can vary person to person. That's a good analogy because when you do look at those charts, you see that certainly when you're in your 30s, there's quite a big range about what is totally normal. And yes, so it's all normal the same way any bra size is totally normal. Yeah. And I actually do get a lot of um, patients who come from um, having an AMH done by their GP and it comes back as low and um, you can freak out really and and worry about the fact that, um, you know, it might reflect immediate fertility and actually it doesn't. So women with a smaller ovary with a lower follicle density Mm -hmm. might be perfectly fertile. They might be more than perfectly fertile. And so um, it is quite possible and happens all the time that women who are trying to conceive with a low AMH might get pregnant easily and naturally. Um, Where it does come into play is if a woman is either having a lot of trouble for a huge variety of reasons, couples and women can have trouble getting pregnant. It's one of the early tests. And it it does um, impact how a woman might um, experience IVF as a process because the more eggs you can make in one occasion and one round of treatment Mm. the more likely you are to have a baby from that round of treatment and where women are disadvantaged where they have a low AMH is that they may be able to make only a low number of eggs um, with stimulation Uh, because I always say no matter what dose you have of medication you can't stimulate a follicle if it's not there you can only stimulate what the ovary has to work with and um, as I said, it takes 300 days for follicles to leave the resting pool and get to the point where they're going to get involved in a cycle. And so there will be some cycle to cycle variation in the same person, even with the exact same regimen of medications. Mm-hmm. There will also be some um, you know, women who respond better to one combination of medications than another. And that also can be something that's um, very individual. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we can only work with what the ovary is capable of giving us. And so women who do have a low AMH um, may take more rounds of treatment to get pregnant than women who have a really kind of, you know, kick-ass ovarian reserve. Yeah. Okay. And so if if you were curious about knowing what your level was because you're – Maybe you want to freeze your eggs or maybe you've had a bit of trouble conceiving. What steps do you go to th- to get an AMH? Do you, would you speak to a fertility specialist first or can you just go to your GP? This is in Australia. I have some patients who go to a GP and do a whole gamut of tests before I see them and have others who come with nothing and we start from scratch and both approaches are totally fine. So there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there are a lot of GPs who are quite confused about AMH uh, because it's a test that is really useful only in the context of considering fertility treatments. And um, really, it it means absolutely nothing unless you are considering having a baby. Unless you're considering having a baby and needing help. Right. um, Or considering egg freezing. Socially. Well, actually, <laughs> speaking on the term of social egg, I actually have just very recently, hot off the press, been involved in generating the first Australian New Zealand official guideline on egg freezing, um, which is yet to be published. It's still in the process of um, perfecting uh, yes. the manuscript. Thank you. Uh, but we are trying to remove the term social egg freezing from the conversation because. My feeling, well, it is it is ridiculous, and my feeling is that it is a term that can marginalise yep. and it can stigmatise yep. and it can attribute blame to women mm-hmm. for um, accessing a technology that is a completely robust and worthwhile technology, uh, and it can really, really miss the big picture of why women do freeze eggs. Yes. So we, as Australians, are leading the charge to remove it from the medical nomenclature. And if anyone's listening around the world, um, feel free to join the bandwagon. (laughs) Sounds good. We need to remove the stigma in every way we can. Okay, so back to AMH. So you've you've gotten your test and you've got a number. Um, What could what give us the range of numbers that is like totally normal? When should we worry? What do we do with this number? So it also depends on the age of the person. Yeah. So most women do have a low AMH leading into their, their 40s mm-hmm. uh, and that's pretty much just part of our biology that our ovarian reserve does drop off as we get older. Yes. Usually from age 35 there's a dramatic decline. Mm-hmm. Um, that does also affect how many eggs might be available in a treatment for women at that age. A second important factor is that egg quality also does decline. Uh, and so the younger you are when you have either IVF treatment or freeze eggs, uh, the better prognosis per egg. Yes. AMH can range wildly. Okay. So some people come with an AMH of less than one. That would yeah. be a very low AMH at any age. At any age. Yep. Um, some people have an AMH that's, uh, you know, kind of between 5 and 25, and I'd call that pretty normal. Yep. But it can range wildly and be normal. Yes. And uh, some women who do have polycystic ovaries um, or just multifollicular ovaries or are just born with, you know, God's blessing of lots and lots of eggs can have an AMH over 30. And I just checked off a result today for one of my patients with polycystic ovaries who had an AMH of over 100. So, you know, it can range quite wildly. Another important thing to say is that AMH should not be measured on the pill. And it should not be measured in women who do not ovulate because they have central suppression, hypothalamic and ovulation. And that's a big word, but it's basically sometimes when women are super skinny, um, either if they're elite athletes or they are really sick or they're anorexic, they just don't ovulate. Yep, and the AMH can be suppressed in in those women as well. So uh, those are the two groups where we should not be measuring AMH. Women who've had recent chemo um, and might be measuring AMH to see how their ovary has um, kind of rallied, um, should wait a few months before they do it. So immediately after chemo is not the time to do the AMH. You've got to wait three, four months to, to measure it. So I suppose the gen- thinking about the age group that would be getting the test, there's a likelihood that they're using some sort of contraceptive, either the pill or an IUD or... 
Yeah, IUDs are okay. So you can be tested mm. for the AMH yep. whilst you have an IUD inserted and it won't affect it. Won't affect it. But uh, in terms of the pill, you should have a one-month holiday okay. and have a natural period yep. and check the AMH in that context. Okay. So you, you go and have the blood test and then you get, you get your number back and... What, what do you do? You then decide about freezing? Or? Look, I think AMH is one, one test that we do to counsel women on how well they might do in an egg freezing cycle or an IVF cycle and to discuss, I guess, a priori how many treatments might be needed ballpark yep. to get kind of a reasonable number of eggs in the bank. And I usually encourage women to freeze 20 to 30 eggs if they're, you know, around 35 yep. because we know from studies that have looked at really young fertile egg donors mm-hmm. that each egg gives you about a 6.5% <laughs> chance of having a live-born baby and that you need to thaw on average about 15 <laughs> eggs uh, to have a live birth. Okay. And you can hear our, our mascots here, the podcast mascots, uh, Daisy and Bella <laughs> in the background. If you're at the stage of having an AMH test because of what you're thinking of, of going forward and doing, whether it be egg freezing or the full IVF process, it, it, you should engage a specialist from the very beginning before you have the test? Look, I, I'm quite happy for GPs to arrange an AMH test, but I think if a patient's requesting an ovarian reserve assessment, they really deserve to see a fertility specialist yeah. because it's really impossible to interpret that test in isolation and you can actually do harm to a patient by um, either telling them everything's okay or engendering fear because they're or anxiety because of a low number or a high number because which is in isolation which is one factor that is in isolation not necessarily going to give a a full picture there are women that i treat who have a high amh who come to me uh, with infertility and when we do embryo testing which I often do in IVF for couples struggling to conceive at an older age over 37 it's extremely cost effective because a lot of completely beautiful looking normal looking embryos mm-hmm. have made catastrophic genetic mistakes and can't possibly be a normal baby yeah. um, I had a patient the other day who was uh, 39 years old and she had a great AMH and we were super excited that she made six embryos from her first IVF cycle she had an embryo transfer of her first embryo fresh which didn't take and then we were lucky to get the results of the other five and it showed that four out of five were completely abnormal and only one was normal so the take-home message is quality is you know more important than quantity but quantity does impact how quickly you can find the golden egg that's going to make the golden embryo in the context of IVF treatment. These are complex, nuanced issues. The whole of your fertility history and that of your partner, your medical history, your lifestyle factors, they all need to be taken into account to optimise the chance of creating a baby. Mm -hmm. And it's not a one-second answer uh, in terms of, what's your AMH level? So my advice is that if you're thinking about fertility deeply enough to be asking for an AMH test, you deserve to have a full comprehensive assessment um, through a fertility specialist. And just be aware of of every nuance as opposed to someone whose day job isn't dealing with these numbers. Yeah, and just to be fully informed because... About what the result means. 
you can't actually make decisions that are the best decisions in your best interest if you don't have all the information and the full picture. And so the AMH is only one piece of a much bigger puzzle. I think with AMH, it's something people have heard of. And that's why there's a bit of a thing about what is your AMH number. But actually, like you're saying, it's one tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and it's an easy thing to measure. Yeah. So it's something that you can easily and quickly measure and um, and give an answer. Yeah. But the interpretation of that answer um, can lead to either kind of a fully informed situation where you have a very realistic assessment and that's if you see a fertility specialist and have it explained in the context of your situation or it can lead to either false reassurance where patients delay seeking help and then come back when it's much harder to help them when they should have really been referred for treatment or in some cases it may when an AMH returns as low but there's no other real issues Mm -hmm. it may generate a whole heap of anxiety that's completely unwarranted so you know, it, it's really one of these things that, as I said, if you're if you're contemplating having the test, um, you should really speak, have a full a specialist, specialist opinion. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. For more information on Dr. Rayleigh Alou and her practice, visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or on all of the socials under Women's Health Melbourne. on polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. We'll be covering how it happens, who it happens to, treatment, impact on fertility, IVF if you have PCOS, everything, everything, four episodes. See you then.